Amen. Thank you so much, Katie. I talk loud, so woo! Come down that. Um, I'm so excited to be here, and um, I'm so thankful to Katie for inviting me. Although, I think I just kind of like made her invite me because <laughs> I ran into her at a conference and kind of accosted her and said, "Hey, if you need any speakers, I'll speak." Katie has never heard me speak, um, but she's like, oh, "Okay." And I sat down. I thought, "Oh my gosh, I was so bold. I just like..." Wah. Anyway, one thing led to another, and um, in fact, it's worked out that I was invited to speak and, and so excited about that. Like Katie said, I go to Hope Church now. Um, I've been a card-carrying member um, since really the actual start of it, but I actually started from um, Creekside, actually. Um, about three years ago, I began attending Creekside Church. Um, my family, we lived in Lincoln, and um, Really, I think as I look back, I was really placed there for a very short season just to listen to a most phenomenal sermon series called God's Heart for the Poor. Ryan led this sermon series, um, and it went on and on and on and on. It was a week after week after week after week after week after week. <laughs> I think he had a point that he was trying to impress upon us, um, and it was fantastic. Still one of the most phenomenal series and teachings I've ever gotten to be a part of. And at the, the final sort of culminating Sunday of that sermon series, we were challenged um, to respond to God's heart for the poor. And we were given pieces of paper. And on that paper, we had um, ideas of how to respond from anything as simple as um, contributing to a cause, to praying, to the one that I accepted, because it's kind of my way, live differently, or something like that. So there was a big one. And I just knew at that moment, by then, I had met Matt and Sarah Moore. Matt Moore is the, a pastor of Hope Church, the startup. Um, we were actually a church plant. And Matt had spoken to Creekside during that sermon series, and I had met them. One thing led to another, and um, we moved to Oak Park, um, down into Sacramento. Um, and became part of that church plant, and I am still part of that today. And some of my sisters that I had none of these people I would have ever known had we not gotten to do that are here today with me. So I am really excited, but I am one of the people that Creekside Church has sent to a different community. So I'm very proud of that and feel at home here. So amen to that, right? So um, we're going to talk a little bit today about glimpses of the kingdom, we have been talking um, about how we can taste and see and hear all over this weekend um, about the kingdom of God. And what we know are that the Gospels are filled with references to and analogies of the kingdom of God. Jesus talked and taught and answered questions about it everywhere he went. This text up here um, is actually from Matthew, which tells us that from the time right after his baptism and, and temptation in the wilderness, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In fact, all of the Gospels offers re reference Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And those two terms are synonymous. It's just the perspective. Matthew tends to use the kingdom of heaven. The other gospel writers use the kingdom of God. Matthew was very predominantly writing to a Jewish audience. And in, in that time, the Jewish 
um, culture was they didn't actually use the term God. They used other terms that referenced God out of respect and reverence for him. So throughout Matthew's gospel, predominantly you'll see kingdom of heaven, the other's kingdom of God, but they really are the same thing. In fact, the kingdom is such a big theme for Jesus that it's mentioned 126 times in the gospels alone. Now, interestingly, it's not mentioned very often after that, only about 30 to 40 times after that, but that's because Jesus came and lived the life to actually show us what that kingdom of God was and how we can get it. He taught about the timing of the kingdom and how to enter it. We hear that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's one of the quotes from Mark. Then we have Luke, and he says the kingdom of God is is, present tense, in your midst. And we have truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. This we heard about our um, Nicodemus um, uh, teaching, and that actually kind of conveys a future perspective of the kingdom of God. And in Matthew, again, over and over again, you'll see things. Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus also taught us how to pray for the kingdom. You know, in the Lord's Prayer, we say, your kingdom come. He also taught us in the Sermon of the Mount um, who it is for, the poor in spirit, and those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And he gave us parable after parable after parable describing what the kingdom of God would look like. He says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like yeast. The kingdom of God is like treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant searching for fine pearls. And there's many, many more than that. And we read and study the gospels more deeply a picture begins to emerge that the kingdom of God is already here, as we see in the kingdom of God is at hand, and that it is, and that Jesus ushered in this new age with his birth and life. But we also see that it's not fully here yet, and it won't be until he comes again. We see evidence of this new age, not just through his teaching and his preaching and his talking, but actually we see it through his living. We, by looking closely at the Gospels, we can taste and see this kingdom living of Jesus. We see it through the way Jesus reached out to people, through his healing, as we saw in the paralytic man at the pool, through his compassion, as we saw with his bleeding woman and healing of her, and through his saving of them, like the woman at the well. We see it through the attracting and gathering of people, of multitudes to him. Multitudes of people gathered around Jesus. But we, we also see it through his deep relationships that he developed with his apostles and his disciples and his family. We see it through his inclusion and welcoming of all people groups, especially those that were most marginalized, the leper, the blind, the Samaritan woman, the tax collector, the poor, the children, the widows, the sinners. I don't think it's an accident that Jesus died in an open position, still welcoming all. And we see that the source of his kingdom living, his ability to live a kingdom life, was born out of his abiding and perpetual relationship with his father and his resolute, unwavering 
commitment to obedience. Jesus gave the people of his day a front row seat to the ways of the kingdom, of ways of kingdom living, and then through his death, resurrection, and empowering gift of the Holy Spirit, he invited all of us to that kingdom life also. So we hear this a lot, the kingdom of God, kingdom living, kingdom life, but we really want to know what does that really mean? What does that look like? How does that feel? How can we best taste and see that kingdom living? Well, we see a good example of this at the end of Acts 2. We see that following Pentecost, that day when the Holy Spirit was poured out and then made available to all who believed, that the earliest believers immediately embraced this newly available kingdom. They, in essence, began living an abundant, full, and rich kingdom life. This passage is probably one of the most well-known passages about kingdom living, a passage that we look to today, sometimes with wistfulness or nostalgia, maybe even envy, but not likely a present-day possibility, much less a probability. Let's go ahead and look at the text. This is the in uh, Acts 2, chapter 42, I mean, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Wow. Imagine that. I don't know that that looks like us today, right? So some of the things I find striking about these verses is the use of so many unqualified terms. By that I mean we have words such as everyone and all and everything and anyone and every day. We look deeper and we don't see, we don't see the qualifiers such as nearly all. We don't see some of them or for the most part or when it's convenient. As we look deeper at this passage and we put, our our, we put ourselves in the shoes of the believers at the time, we begin to appreciate or experience the depth of relationship the believers had with each other and the impact that that created in the community at large. This passage gives the sense of a togetherness, of a relational uniting around the good news of Jesus Christ that seems uncommon today we see that in the text. They were all together. They met every day. This relational uniting seems to have given way to a deeper concern for others than for themselves. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Joy and delight actually exudes from these passages in the, for this way of living, from the sense of awe that they experience to their desire to be together, to the deep contentedness we glean from the words glad and sincere hearts. Perhaps most intriguing though, these passages give us a glimpse of the kingdom as Jesus described it, a sense of yeast and of a mustard seed, of spreading and growing, 
a sense of pearls and treasure, something of such great value that it was not only more valuable than material property and possessions, but it was something that others, when they saw it, wanted it too. As we can see in the text, they enjoyed the favor of all the people watching them. All the people favored them. And the Lord added to their number daily. The thing I like to think about within this context, though, is how did this really happen? How did this come about? How did they really want to be together every single day? Why would they sell all their possessions to give to others? A quick answer, an answer that we always like to say is, oh, it's the Holy Spirit. And in fact, that's true. Luke tells us a little later in Acts 4.33 that God's grace was powerfully at work in them all. But God's grace is at work in all believers. And yet, we are not all living like this. I believe the difference is this. At some point, each of the early believers said yes. They said yes first to the invitation of union with God. Then they said yes again and again and again. Yes, I will follow you. Yes, I will get to know my neighbor and love my neighbor tangibly. Yes, I will get to know my other neighbor and love him also tangibly. Yes, I will go there. Yes, I will give and help and show compassion to those in need. Yes, I don't care if I'm less comfortable. Saying yes to you makes my joy complete. The description of the early believers' lives and the community that they experienced is actually from the accumulation and the spreading of countless collective intentional yeses that they followed through on over and over and over again. I want to look to another passage that really is a great example of kingdom living. And this is in the book of Acts in chapter 9. In Joppa, there was a disciple, love that, a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him at once and urged him, Peter, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with him. Peter sent them all out of the room, then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Pretty amazing, right? Peter performs a miracle through the grace and the spirit of Jesus Christ, and she is dead and now alive. And because of that miracle performed by Peter, it's sometimes easy to overlook the life of Dorcas, discernible in this text. What emerges when we read the text with the prism, through the prism or through the focus of learning about Dorcas, is that first and foremost, she's a disciple. 
She was a known follower of Jesus Christ and a believer. She was part of a small faith community in Joppa, which is a city that is, is actually incorporated into Tel Aviv today, known as Jaffa. Um, Dorcas was known for putting her faith into action, as the text says. She was always doing good and helping the poor. Her impact and influence in and on her community was so significant that her death must have seemed incomprehensible to them, so much so that the other disciples there in Joppa decided that they needed to go get Peter to come. And although why they wanted to get Peter to come is actually speculation, we're not really sure, it's not too far-fetched to think that maybe they were hoping for a miracle similar to other miracles that Peter had previously performed. In fact, in the text immediately preceding the story of Tabitha or Dorcas is a miracle that Peter performed of a man who had been paralyzed and bedridden for eight years, and he healed him and told him to get up and walk. So all, everyone was knowing that this sort of thing was happening. So it's possible that's why they wanted Peter to come. And, but interestingly, when they did send two men out to get Peter, Peter dropped everything at once and came. In addition, the widows who were gathered around her prepared body were crying when Peter arrived, and they showed him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made. It's not hard to envision the scene or to see and taste the scene of the widow showing him the clothing, offering him praise and, and, and respect for Dorcas while simultaneously grieving the loss of a dear friend, someone with whom they shared deep relationship. We also learn that Dorcas was in an upstairs room of a home, which possibly signifies that Dorcas was a woman of means, having a home large enough to not only have an upper room, but we also know that she must have had sufficient means to actually buy the materials necessary to make robes and clothes. So we come away from this text with the sense that Dorcas was a person who, through her obedient faith and her loving character, was generous with her time, her abilities, her means, her, and her gathering many around her during her life, meeting their physical and their relational needs. It is delightful to imagine the look on everyone's face when Peter presents her as alive. What joy and excitement there must have been. So much so that the text even tells us that so many then came to believe. And I think, knowing Dorcas like I do, that it would be fair to say that Dorcas likely continued her many good works in helping the poor and the widowed and her faith community thereafter. In fact, you may have heard of such things as the Dorcas Societies. Dorcas Societies have been actually around for hundreds of years, and they are an honoring of biblical Dorcas and are all over the world organizations and societies that are actually working to benefit the poor. Aside from this, then, I still like to think about, the thing I challenge all of us to think about, though, is the how of kingdom life, the how of Dorcas kingdom living. These few verses, just a few very short verses, are a glimpse into actually the culmination of a life of kingdom living. The community response to her death wasn't because of a one-time instance of kindness. The widows weeping and showing off the clothes Dorcas made were not just because of clothes. Peter didn't come just because he was asked. These responses were due to these long-term committed relationships born out of Dorcas's abiding 
and perpetual relationship with Jesus Christ, under whose reign she bowed and within whose realm she lived. That's what it means to accept Jesus as Lord, bowing under his reign and living in his realm. And it is also how we enter into kingdom living. We do this not just through words and intellectual belief, but through an abiding and perpetual connection to Christ, which creates in us a heart for all of God's people, which in turn gives rise to our chronic condition that I like to call yes. After all, at one point, Dorcas, much like the early believers, said her first yes to God, then another, then another, then another, until yes became her way of life. Yes to God, yes to meeting needs, yes to relationship, culminating a kingdom life so rich and abundant and full of others, of a kingdom life so immeasurably pleasing to God. And today, I believe we all have that same opportunity, the opportunity to first say yes to God, and then saying yes again, and then again and again, using our gifts, our talents, our means, our knowledge, and the opportunities within and around us. In every single environment in which we find ourselves, we can observe those around us, we can offer prayer, and we can begin conversation. That is saying yes. We can intentionally seek people who are of different races, classes, and life stages, and enter into conversation and relationship. That is saying yes. We can choose a particular need or issue that breaks God's heart and our hearts, like homelessness, hunger, drug use, incarceration, and invest our time in the cause and in the people affected by it. That is saying yes. We can say simple yeses. We can pick up discarded candy wrappers on the sidewalk, or we can make committed yeses, like writing one card a week, every week, for several years. We can say yes to serving others, and yes to giving, and yes to sharing, and yes to deeply loving, and yes to seeing everyone as God's image. In fact, we can say yes in obedience to what Christ modeled and taught us so often and for so long that the accumulated collection of our yeses will prompt people to say or to ask us, what is wrong with you? <laughs> right? That's what we want. We want to live questionable lives. What is wrong with you? <laughs> and then we can share with them this, that we suffer from a chronic, contagious, yeast-like condition called yes. <laughs> That's an easy way, it's an icebreaker. Chronic, contagious, yeast-like condition called yes. It is diagnosed by the onset and presence of a collection of symptoms known as kingdom living that look like radical sharing, radical giving, radical doing, and radical loving that its prognosis is eternal, and it's caused by the love and life of Jesus Christ. May you all be blessed with the condition of yes. Amen. Amen.
Thank you. I'm going to go ahead and close us in prayer. Father God, I pray that we leave this place today and that a plague of yeses breaks out among your people, that we can't wait to begin or continue our journey with you, renewed and refreshed and ready to live a life that not only causes people to ask what is wrong with us, but causes them to want it too, to want this full and abundant kingdom life you so graciously and unconditionally offer. We love you so much, Lord. You are our king, and we are so honored to live in your realm and bow to your reign. In your most precious name we pray, amen.